Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, it is the 13th of the 10th. Michael, how have you been since Sunday? I've been tolerably well, Gary, and yourself? I've been quite good, I've been out and about in the town. Out and about in the town? That's not like you. I know, I thought I'd try something new. What did you see on the town? Anything you liked more than yourself? No, I went out for dinner to chapter one. Oh, what was that like? Um, expensive would be the, the opening point. Okay, yeah. We got the, four of us got the tasting menu. I was drinking, one person was having wine, two people weren't drinking at all. And you still came out not terribly shy of a thousand euro. <sighs> Whoa, that's a lot of moolah. That is Whoa. Yeah, well, I mean, tasting is a 150-year-old person. Jeepers. I think, I, I think I'd wait for the group on. <laughs> one of the people we went with thought it was excellent, one of the best meals they'd ever had. One person thought it was pretty good. I thought it was actually relatively mediocre. Question I always think when, on the very, very rare occasions these days that I, I venture into the fancier end of the, the culinary swimming pool, is there any dish that I leave the restaurant? And it's, you know, like when you leave a, a play or a, a, a show, you're humming a tune it's just in your head was when you left the restaurant was there anything there still that was still resonating with you still memorable oh yeah but primarily because I never wanted to taste it again that's not really what they're looking for Gary they're looking for something that you're thinking of I want to get up in the middle of the night and mug old women in order to have that again on technical level it's very impressive food. Like the things they've done with food and the way they present them. Very technical, very aesthetically pleasing. But the problem was that the flavour profile didn't really keep up with her. So I kind of put it in the same level I would put a wedding cake. They're very nice to look at and very technically pleasing. And if you're into how food is put together, you can really enjoy that. But then you taste it and you sort of go, well, this isn't how I would have really thought you would have wanted to do that. That's. The, I wonder is that just... I don't know... I, I don't eat out of that level often enough to know these days. I wonder if that's just a, a bit of the nature of the beast. The last time I was at one of them fancy restaurants, and sort of missionary type things, was in, oh God, several years ago now I was in Le Cravan. I actually had a coupon card and I went out with a friend of mine for dinner there and we had the tasting menu. And it was like you say, it was very accurate. All of the cooking was very precise and very well done. It was very beautiful on the plate. But when it came to actually something which made me wow. Wow, flavor-wise, I mean, just wasn't there. Do you remember that place we went to in Lisbon for dinner, and we had I had the chocolate tart? Yes, yeah. I mean, that was a kind of a wow. That wasn't a very expensive. It wasn't cheap. I was frankly, I thought Lisbon was a little bit dear than I thought it would be. But it was just stunning. It was this. It was the most incredible chocolate thing I'd had for a very long time. And that's what I'm expecting from a place like that, or a place like your, you know, Chapter One, which has a tremendous reputation. Uh, no, I would say my my overwhelming feeling afterwards was just a sort of vague sense of disappointment um, and all I could think was that there are other restaurants in this country which the food may have been less visually arresting but I would consider to have been far better meals just far better uh, meals overall and if you want an actual if the listener wants a, a restaurant recommendation because apparently this is what we're doing now we're reviewing food <laughs> not the budget yeah why not there is a hotel in Donegal called Harvey's Point and there is a restaurant in that called The Restaurant uh, I have never seen it on any list of the best restaurants in Ireland. It's never mentioned in any of the Michelin guides, not even as one of the non-Michelin starred restaurants which they will highlight. It is one of the best restaurants uh, in this country. Or at least it was when I went there. I haven't been there in the better part of a year and with COVID God knows things change. But fantastic restaurant. And I left it and I wanted to tell people about how it was a fantastic restaurant and the wonderful food they did and I left chapter one actually feeling kind of nauseous because I don't really like roe, which for those who don't know are, are fish eggs. They're basically caviar, but not from sturgeon. And they really like making use of, of fish eggs. And I just... <laughs> also, the, the dessert, everything they, they did that I didn't like the taste of, I could understand why they had done it and what it was meant to achieve. So before the very last dessert, you, you get an, another dessert, which is to clean the, the palate because the, the last uh, main course and tasting menu is, is hair, which is uh, in like a, a truffle sauce. The hair, by the way, was fantastic. Was, I think it was the best thing we had when we were there, although the foie gras was also extremely good. Oh, I like foie gras. Foie gras. It was, it was under like a, a um, an emulsion of apple in a, a petri dish uh, with some smoked eel. That was actually very, very nice. But it was this, the, the thing to clear your palate is this dish, which is mostly built around a frozen lemon sorbet. And right. it works to clean the palate. 
but the proportions of it, there's too much of it. So by the time you get to the end of it, it's gone from cleaning the palate to actually making you feel slightly ill because it's so sharp and it's so fresh. And I know one of the other people I went with afterwards said that once they left the restaurant, they just felt slightly ill because of the, um, the, the, that course. And then the, the very last course was a Jerusalem artichoke ice cream <laughs> with a vinegar caramel. That just sounds like someone's really trying very hard. That's just too much. Harvey's Point, the other thing about, for anybody who doesn't know Harvey's Point, it is also very beautiful. Oh, it's a fantastic hotel as well. It's, it's absolutely well worth going, uh, particularly if you're in the market for some sort of romantic getaway. And it's expensive, but it's not that expensive that you wouldn't you'd want to be very careful about when you went and the restaurant like i would say you'd get two meals in the restaurant for the price of one tasting menu in chapter one and i uh, uh, to sum up it's very technically interesting you may really enjoy it at least one of the people who went of the four thought it was absolutely exceptional but i just thought that the technical aptitude outpaced the actual flavor profile of the food and that's just not what i'm interested in but it's a lovely restaurant. The staff there are fantastic. They're incredibly knowledgeable. They're very attentive. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm going to a restaurant because I want to eat something. And frankly, I just... I wouldn't put it on a list of things I would like to go back to. When you do leave a place, any kind of a business, and you, one of the most pleasant things is to be able to go, to be almost become evangelist for a business. Because when you see people doing something really well, you want them to be rewarded. In any kind of area of life, I do anyway. I think there was a little restaurant opened up years ago near here, not well, not far, not that near in Clonigal called Sharo. If anybody's ever near Bunclody or Carlo, anywhere on there, it's a fantastic place. Two, two young people, and they just did it so well. You just wanted them to succeed, and thankfully they have, and they're still there many years later. But that's in any trade, any business, you know, it's nice to be able to leave it thinking, I want people to go to this, and I'm going to tell people. Because this, these people really deserve, they deserve everything they get because they're just working really hard and they're really good at what they do. Anyway, talking of things, people being really good at what they do, <laughs> segue. It's probably worth going to if you are interested in, in the technicalities of, of preparing food and what you can do with food. Like there's stuff there, like they serve a, uh, a borscht that is on a spoon in a solid skin, which I think is some kind of butter. But as soon as you put it into the mouth, the butter will melt and you just get this pop of borscht. And there's stuff like that, like really interesting technical things. And if you really like that aspect of food, you might think it's worthwhile. Um, but if you're going for, for actual flavor, because you enjoy you know, the actual eating of food, uh, <laughs> I would not recommend it. Now, that was the tasting menu. The lunch menu may be an entirely different beast, but I just... It was the most Michelin of all of the restaurants I've gone to that I think will get Michelin stars. The very particular style of high cuisine that they like. And it just didn't really pull it off. Anyway, talking of things, people being really good at what they do. <laughs> segue. Well, I was just thinking of the tremendously innovative and interesting and well-constructed budget that we had yesterday. Now, we don't want to do massive amounts about it because I'm sure everybody's... Well, for a start, we knew pretty well what it was going to be long before yesterday ever arrived. I mean, the the sense of surprise, shock, horror, awe, whatever, regarding the budget these days is pretty well diminished to nothing. Well, that, that's what happens if you systematically leak every part of it. Indeed. One thing that I... I on the budget that I wanted to um, mention before we go into the, like, the intricacies of it. And I hear... I, the intricacies. And the, uh, ah. To the extent there are intricacies of something like this. I heard two politicians talking about it. One was Patrick Tobin and one was uh, Pierce Doherty, Sinn Féin. And that was in relation to carbon taxes. Now, it's possible other TDs also uh, talk about this, and I, I just haven't heard about it. But Pierce Doherty and Patrick Tobin both came out and said, look, energy prices are going mental. And you're putting them up. And, you know, that's ridiculous. So you're going to put up petrol, you're going to put up fuel, you're going to put all of these things. And that is a penalisation of the poorest in society. And for all that there is, well, we've got to do this to get people to change what they're doing to combat climate change. The poorest people can't afford to change. And all you're doing is hitting those families time and time again, which is exactly true. But what I thought was interesting 
was the response from Ryan. Yeah. And Ryan said that carbon taxes are not the cause of the energy crisis. They are the solution. Carbon taxes are not the cause. They are the solution. That did not have an explanation added to it. Well, he said something he could have thought was an explanation, but it's not. So he made a couple of points. He said that... um, Uh, I heard Pierce talking. It's easy to say that carbon tax is adding to the energy problem, but it's not. The energy crisis is due to international gas prices going through the roof. That is part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Then he said a carbon tax doesn't relate to that for this winter because the tax doesn't go on the heating bills until May and it doesn't apply to electricity. Now, if someone says you're making fuel poverty worse and you're making it more expensive to drive and all of those things... And then you go, well, it's not an electricity. That's a slightly different argument. Yeah, it is kind of. His point, what he said was that we have ring-fenced some of the revenue from the carbon tax and we're going to put that back into fuel poverty measurements. Which is to say, they're going to charge people up front and then they're going to set up a variety of schemes where those people can claim back some of the money. Knowing the government, they will probably do this in some form of um, tax back which is great because the poorest people won't be able to get it anyway. They're also going to do a new low-cost loan scheme for retrofitting, Michael, because, you know, while you're screwing the poor through carbon taxes, you can give them low-cost loans so that they can retrofit their house and then have a loan to pay back. Yeah, which is what, you know, if you you really... You're in a situation where you have no money and (laughs) and no no heating in a shit house. Yeah, that's... Let's take out a loan that we can never pay back. And you probably won't qualify for anyway. No, but I just, I I love the whole, well, the poor are being hit by this. We're going to give them a new way to go into debt, though. And if they do, well, it won't hurt them as much. We're a caring government. Really, that's the the only thing I I, I wanted to briefly observe about the budget was it was kind of the point that uh, Pierre Starty was making. And he put... Pierce had some good lines yesterday. Had to give, he, he, he did say it once. Never has so much been spent to achieve so little. I think that was pretty true. I, I was saying to you beforehand, this was a budget which seemed to me to be so much about a little bit here, a fiver there and 20 quid here and a, a, a top up there and a small grant here and a cutback here and a tax ban there. But no individual problem, no single issue was actually addressed face on in any kind of a systematic or complete way. It was like you decided you have so much paint, you can either paint one room in your house or you can paint half of a wall in all of the rooms in your house, and that was the decision you decided to make. So all you ended up was a house where you had a lot of just shit-looking rooms, but with some fresh paint in all of them. It was higgly big but this notion because it was all over the radio Gary and at times you felt like both RTE and and, and and the independent channels were engaged in some kind of unscripted scripted version of an ad for the for for the green green policies there was no challenging any statement anybody was making about this but they're talking about this whole thing right about gradually using the using price signals <coughs> I think one of them was actually sophisticated and used the word price signals to shift people from this kind of uh, energy to that kind of energy. Good from from bad to good. So you wanted to get people away from diesel cars to petrol cars or to to electric cars. You want to get people away from burning fossil fuels to going into presumably electrical, electric based heating or heat pumps, you know, passive heating, better insulated houses and all, and all of that is grand but it's all nonsense because when they they say well it doesn't this is to everybody this doesn't hurt the poor it's not disproportionate unless you have the money to make the choice to move from a to b you're fucked it's all very well to say well we want to move gradually people away from and gra- not so gradually because by 2030 we're going to we're supposed to be going basically all electric when it comes to motor cars or motor vehicles generally, if you don't have the dosh to buy an electric car, if you're one of those people, and there are quite a few of those people around Gary, who buys their second-hand car at a thousand, two thousand quid, they're basically buying NCTs in order to get something which you get on the road that they can insure and tax, and will get them from A to B, which may be to their job or to to the shop. 
if you're at that point, you the notion that you can you can segue over to electricity is just nonsense. Go on done deal. Go on done deal and put in maximum ten thousand and look for an electric car and see what choices are available to you. Yeah, and we know they're talking about making uh, standard cars more expensive in order to promote people to get electrical cars, which is an interesting approach again because you just make things worse. And if you can afford to switch, you'll be incentivized. And if you can't, well, you can get screwed. And you will be well and truly screwed because you'll be paying. You're going to. They're going to tur- put turn up. They're going to increase VRT. So second-hand cars coming with this will be presumably will be affected when they're coming eventually come in this with duty now if they're coming from the from england not if they're coming from the north you're going to be paying higher tax if there are if you're talking about you you're more polluting cars which are going to be the older cars which are going to be the cheaper cars with the kind of cars that poor people can actually buy you're going to be talking about higher higher prices for your petrol or for your diesel how is this not going to directly impact on people with lower incomes? Because what they say is they say we're going to ring-fence the revenue and that's going to go back to people on low incomes in a variety of protective measures. And that's going to be enough so they'll be able to get together seven or 8000 to buy <coughs> a Nissan Leaf, which is about probably the cheapest. If you get maybe a 10 or 12-year-old Nissan Leaf, you might be able to get one for seven or eight, seven or eight, 9000 quid. And that's the cheap. This nonsense. It's fantasy land. It's like heating, Gary. Okay, we're going to get people away. But when we know, for a start, there's this notion that the only poor people in Ireland live in largest housing estates in Dublin. Well, we know that lots of people amongst the, ca- the, the cash poorest people in Ireland live in rural poverty, and they tend to be people living in low in lower quality housing, not with wonderful insulation and they're not in a position to say okay well, we want to sh- change over the kind of heating we have if they have central heating it's going to be it may be powered by uh, a back boiler which they use timber or turf or coal off and even if it isn't then it's going to be gas or oil and they're going to be and they're still going to be murdered by using gas or oil but what they're not going to be in a position to do is going to put in some kind of new new uh, high-tech, low-carbon emission heating system. That's just, that's nonsense. And and talk about retrofitting and low-cost loans. It's just, I mean, it's great news for the people in in the retrofitting business. But for people on low incomes, this is not, this is a a fantasy that they're going to be able to change, change over and make choices that are not going to be based on either oil or gas or coal or timber or turf. I mean, on one hand, yes, it's great news for people in the retrofitting industries. The problem is those industries tend to be the general construction industry. So we have a massive amount of policies that are going through, which are going to put quite a lot of demand on the construction industry. And I'm not sure they actually have the uh, output to support it. So that'll be good fun, because that will mean, Michael, price increases. And when we said there, one of the issues, actually, that I haven't heard anyone talk about is what we say there that um, they'll take your money, and if you're poor, they'll give it back to you in some way, assuming they do that correctly. If you give people a lump sum at the end of the year, the basically the difference between what you think they spent and, and what you think they should have spent, that may, on its own, cause changes in consumption patterns in that it may cause them to spike because you're giving lump sum payments. Yes. And if you don't give a lump sum payment, how exactly are you going to handle it? So they may actually make things worse by giving additional payments to people if those payments cause people to go out and actually buy things they wouldn't have got normally because they already think that they've spent the income. But that's the sort of you know analysis, Michael, that we don't do in Ireland. We only do, and this is generally true of... Um, finance in Ireland, of of any of the departments, they'll only do the first order consequences of their things. So, you know, you raise tax, you bring in this immediate amount of money. We don't ever do analysis that look at how will that affect people? And then what impact will those uh, changes in behavior have on the amount of money we bring in? That's just not how we do things here. Problem is that's how reality works. So yeah. So here's a here's here's a question. You want to talk about first order and second order analysis? 
When the decision would be made to put another 50, 50 cent on the price of cigarettes, on what basis was that decision made, do you think? Was that done on the basis that that would actually be an incentive to more people to give up smoking? Or was it simply because, well, that's what we do now. We just make cigarettes more expensive. We make tobacco products more expensive because we, that's a good thing to do in and of itself. Or did anybody consider that we have we have reached, and maybe reached some time ago, the tipping point where by increasing duties on, this, on tobacco products to such a point that you no longer have... you. You, yes, certainly you provide a you provide you provide a disincentive to 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 buy those products, but you have created an incentive in a black market where people are now going out to buy uh, contraband tobacco products, whether it's from your friendly man down the pub or for if a, a our car boot sales or wherever. We have the the notion. It seems to me on the basis of the evidence that I've seen the notion that simply putting 50p on is actually going to be a positive towards reducing the number of people consuming tobacco in Ireland is a very very dubious one indeed and it seems to me that it has smacks of, of a, something which was done without any serious thought for first or second order consequences it was simply done because this is what we do and yeah, just, it's, it's not just what happens you make things more expensive and people stop using them because people are just these passive actors, and we've talked about this, God knows, in so many other areas uh, of consumption on this program before. Before, but it's simple. This is again this assumption that you make things more expensive. People are these dumb passive animals that they won't react in any way. They won't go out and try and find some way, legal or illegal or nefarious or otherwise. To access those products and that's in which is of course what has actually happened and you're driving people more and more into these into the situation because of the cost because you're now down to a core of non of smokers in this country that are obviously shall we say the price sensitivity is not the single biggest issue anymore if you want to get these people to transfer from using tobacco products either to complete cessation or onto other safer ways of consuming nicotine. The interesting thing is that Revenue has done actually some um, some research onto this. I think last year or two years ago, they got Ipsos to do some work on this. And what Ipsos... Now, this is incredibly difficult to, to measure, by the way, because you've got two things. You've got illegal packets, which would be black market cigarettes, and you've got where someone just brings in... Um, foreign cigarettes perfectly legally mm -hmm. but that's still a loss to the Irish state because if they were purchased in this jurisdiction they would be uh, the money would go to the, the state so they said that 15% of the um, cigarettes smoked in Ireland were contraband or counterfeit and another 9% were not from Ireland so there's no Irish duty paid on them so that's twenty four percent. Yeah, I've yeah, I, I saw. I've seen other studies which is that you're you're moving up to closer to thirty percent. But anyway, so have I. And it's it's very difficult to measure. And every time the price goes up, it just becomes more and more relevant. And yeah, absolutely, it's possible you bring up the price thinking you raise more revenue, you push more people into actually going abroad and getting them because it actually starts to make a lot more sense, or just buy them off people illegally, and you actually lose money. But like. It's just it's it's the done thing to bring up the price of cigarettes. It's just a thing you're going to do. So why wouldn't you? It's free money, and it's obviously a good thing to do because it's going to stop all those people smoking. Yeah, in the same way, why would irrespective you, of whether or not it will? Why wouldn't you bring up carbon taxes by twenty percent this year? It's just the good thing to do. It's you know we've all agreed it's what should happen, so we do it, and we don't really think about what it's doing. But remember, Michael. Carbon tax is the solution to the energy crisis, not the cause. Yes, not the problem. <laughs> the fact that you know gas prices are going through the the fact that other policy issues that might be at play there are completely the fact that people what are chasing gas more and more because of all of the 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 the, the traditional fuels. It is the one which has the least carbon impact. 
I wonder if that might perhaps be something to do with it or the fact that <laughs> sensible governments all around the world have decided that even if you have gas out there in either on land or in the sea around your coasts, you're jolly well not going to go and look for it. You're going to use whatever available resources have already been discovered. And even if that means that those resources become more and more valuable because of scarcity and because of demand, well, to hell with that whole nonsense of finding more sources of gas. We don't want any of that nonsense over here, Gary. And maybe other governments have been as sensible as we have. And that has, in its own in turn, caused an increase in the price of gas as well. While they, they're still talking about making uh, all non-electric vehicles more expensive, they did put up VRT in this budget. So from January 1st, you're depending on the emissions that your car uh, releases, you're looking at a 1% to 4% increase. And then, of course, the price of petrol is going up and the price of diesel is going up, uh, as is home heating oil. I thought Pascal's comments were actually quite interesting. Pascal, I, you may have seen this, Michael, he said that not only are, are carbon taxes necessary, he said the higher carbon taxes are a necessity because, Michael, the world is burning. The world is burning. Ah. But then he said, and the only chance we have to control those fires is through coherent and effective policies. Oh, then we're fucked. Yeah, coherent, sensible policies. No, I don't know what country is lucky enough to have those, but by God, we're not. So that's the end of that first. Did you see, I don't know, in, in other news, which is not connected directly to this, um, Macron conducted a, a big, uh, I don't know what you call it, a press conference or a launch uh, discussing the, the next generation of nuclear power. Yes, I did. Uh, less waste, higher efficiency, all good. You know, we give out about the French and there's a kind of a thing, isn't there, that you know, it's okay to sort of diss the French all the time, but you know what? It may be, Gary, that the time is coming where we're all we, as we all huddle around the flickering flames of the last piece of wood that we're allowed to burn, and the lights go dimmer and dimmer, and across Europe, but there will be one country which will be glowing with light and bristling with heat and full of activity. And it'll be France. We'll all be saying, you know what? Maybe they weren't such, they weren't so stupid after all. No, and, and we had, there was, Eamon Ryan had to come out there yesterday. And I'd say this one hurt him to say. He said that, um, yeah, those peat stations that we closed, or that they had tried to make them uh, biomass stations and they couldn't, they couldn't get through. I think it was a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a planning issue, yeah. Yeah, and um, they shut down permanently. And Ryan has come out and said that um, those plants, the, the peat-fired power stations, may have a central role in emergency electrical <laughs> supplies. Yeah, I saw that. I thought they may have a central role. Well, there you go. It's a pity nobody had worked that out before they shut them down, Gary. Well, I suppose technically, to, to be fair to him, he said, I wouldn't rule out them having a central role. Gary, what does it mean? What does it mean when a politician comes out and says, I wouldn't rule out? Are you going to run for the leadership of the... Well, I wouldn't rule it out. I think that we can be confident that means that somewhere as we speak, a paper is being developed by the department, by some civil servant in the department, of how, how quickly can we get this back on board and how can we spin it? I... On one hand, I... I I quite dislike talking about carbon taxes because they are so popular amongst a certain segment of society. But they're also just a terrible policy. I've read quite a lot on this and the attempts to square the circles of how to stop this being harmful to people. And no one has yet been able to find a way to do it. But there seems to have been a moment where everyone just decided carbon taxes, that's what we need. And now we're just doing it. Well, I suppose it kind of makes... There's an obvious, on the face of it, sense to them. Because the free marketeer types will say that if you want to change behaviour 
and you want to do so in a way which is a fair and equitable, you, you tax consumption. So, for example, they would say instead of having just uh, a flat road tax on cars, which is to pay for the road infrastructure in the country, what it would be far more sensible and fairer to tax people on road usage. So that people who use the roads far more actually end up paying for the, their use and where and people who don't who only just drive around the town and don't use them so much they pay less so that they, and again with uh, with carbon taxes if you use a lot of carbon stuff then you should pay more of it and if you use less then you should be rewarded for it and it, create, it creates an incentive i mean on the face of it if you were if you were starting from a point gary of sort of perfect equitable distribu economic distribution where everybody was basically using the same had the same kind of access to a certain you know sunk capital their houses were the same or their machines were the same you could say that it made it makes sense as a starting point the problem is what we've been talking about here is that the fact that there you are there are going to be certain people for whom there isn't actually a choice. You can't transition from one to another. That it's not a nudge so much as a kick in the arse. So, I mean, on the face of it, there's a, there, is a, there is a reasonableness to it. Did we, um, did we talk about the Irish Times poll on this, on the last year? No, I don't think we did. No, no, we didn't. So, I'll put a link to this. I assume people have seen it, but it was, it was interesting nonetheless. The Irish Times polled people not on... Do you support measures to protect against climate change or to fight climate change? They poll people on nine actual measures. And turns out when you do that, public support, um, it wouldn't even be fair to say it nosedives. Like it craters. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So crashes. They ask people, do you support higher taxes on energy and fuel, electricity, gas, petrol, diesel? 82% said no. 14% supported. In politics, there is a um, thing called an 80-20 issue. They're sometimes called wedge issues. They're issues where nearly everyone agrees with you, but where you still have an opposition. So you can come out and say something incredibly brave, Michael, and forceful against the 20% that don't agree with you in the safe knowledge that you are absolutely safe unless you screw it up yourself. And you can make yourself more popular and there's very little risk to you. They're what politics is built around, trying to find them and exploit them. The thing is, in this particular case, is there's a wonderful curiosity, which is that you have a literal inversion, I would say, between the general population and between the doll. If you have an 80-20 split in the population against carbon taxes, I'd say if you went to the Dáil, you have an 80-20 split in favour of carbon taxes. And therefore, it would be it, you would have thought it would have represented a pretty decent opportunity for some enter, enterprising young politician to go out and make a name for herself. I mean, 81% against anything that will run the risk of interruptions in electricity supply. The majority of people would not accept higher taxes on air travel. Even reducing the size of the national cattle herd, 60% of people are against, which is amazing considering a lot of these people would have been urban people who don't care about the national herd. And also know nothing about the nature of food production. And it's worth just noting in passing in case people didn't know. If you look at the average carbon footprint, say for a producing a thousand gallons of milk or a, th or, a, or a ton of beef. The global average footprint is two and a half times bigger than the carbon footprint in Ireland. Now, actually, I say carbon footprint, I mean, I should say greenhouse gases, because actually the big thing, the carbon is part of it because of the nature of the business. <clears throat> but when you're talking about the actual beasts themselves, it is through, it's uh, methane. <clears throat> and it's not... Uh, as people think, it's through burping. Although there are people working on uh, developing feeds that will work in cattle's stomach to reduce the amount of methane that they they produce. That's not actually that's not a joke. That's actually true. But if you look at what would happen is if we get if we reduce our herd, <clears throat> Ireland exports something like ninety percent of the total food production. So we're massively tilted towards exporting exporting our food. And considering the size of the country, we're actually quite substantial when it comes to, say, beef exports. 
what will happen if you take up the slack the brazilians will just go in just chop down another bit of the rainforest and and just make more beef but uh, if you actually cared about uh, greener less damaging production of milk or beef then you would actually say we should be increasing proportionately our our, our herd here rather than punishing us for the reason we're Less damaging is because unlike other places, we produce our, our cattle off grass and we don't use feed lots and we don't use high intensity finishing and things like that. So, but yeah, 60% and 82% Gary, when was the last time you saw 82% for anything? I mean, that's an incredible number in the poll, considering particularly the context of all of the information and all of the subtweeting level propaganda that we we hear about this these kinds of policy moves for 82% to be opposed to carbon taxes is dramatic david quinn was making the point considering we've seen this poll in the irish times can we expect that somebody will represent those 82% on the airwaves of rte over the next couple of days when this has been discussed in the budget i think it was a reasonable question rte have a very particular line on climate change and they have signed up to covering climate now the activist group who put forward talking points experts things like that uh, to rte i have tried to foi rte's conversations with covering climate now to see what they're actually discussing rte have refused everything i now have to submit it directly to the data commissioner because rte will not give out anything related to programming and they're saying it's all related to programming but no we're absolutely not going to see rte talk about these things or put forward anyone sensible to talk about them but even on like making it more expensive to buy petrol and diesel cars 72 percent against what i thought was particularly interesting michael is two things this was a poll of 1200 people the average poll in ireland is about 350 that's considered to be to be considered to be statistically significant. So this is, don't know what the margin of error was on this, but it should be substantially lower than a normal poll. What I thought was particularly interesting is that of the nine measures, four were rejected by the majority of Green Party voters. So Green Party voters, the majority of Green Party voters do not want higher taxes on energy and fuel. They don't want anything that runs the risk of interruptions in electrical supply. They do not want it to be more expensive to buy petrol or diesel cars. And they don't want to pay higher property taxes for homes that are not energy efficient. And that's the Green Party. So it seems like there is an incredible (laughs) gap between what the public think when you actually break it down measure by measure and what there is a political push for. I mean, as I said, the only people I've really heard talking about this are Aintu and Sinn Féin, which is kind of bizarre because you would think in any normal functioning country, you know, the right wing fiscal conservative party would be saying, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe there are other things we could do, looking at energy mix or the like, that wouldn't involve making life worse for everyone. If only, Gary, we had a right-wing, fiscally prudent party. Is there someone? Is there somewhere we can go and get one? I mean, there may be, after all of the Fine Gael ministers go move abroad for whatever jobs they're seeking. <laughs> I've got a poll going on how many of them, will uh, of the current Fine Gael ministers, would have left the country for an international position within two years of the end of this government. I'm currently on four. That's that's where I'm putting my shot. There is a problem here, though, which may be a, a quite a deep problem. Maybe it'll pass. Maybe people will just eventually accept what they're given. Through the last number of couple of generations in politics in in in, in the Western democracies, we have seen initially just as a little bit of a growth but it seems to me now a substantial growth in a, in, in a problem of a disjunction between the rulers and the ruled the response historically was well i don't like that well then if you don't like it vote for someone else and because there was always this belief that if you didn't like a set of policies or a direction then you could find a political party to vote for that would oppose those so there were always one or two issues that maybe this wasn't the case the example I've used in the past would have been, say, in the United Kingdom, you would have had a period, fairly extensive periods, where public polling would have suggested that the public would be supportive of the reintroduction of capital punishment. But every time this was muted in the House of Commons, capital punishment would would, would have been defeated by very substantial majorities, that there was just no taste in the House of Commons amongst MPs for the reintroduction of that. But that was a single subject. 
it seems to me now that we are moving towards situations where more and more there is a disjunction between the values of the people who are potential politicians and the people voting. So particularly I'd say, oh, we, 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 I don't want to relitigate this subject, but we've talked about a number of subjects now, where we know that the public, when they become aware of the kinds of bills that have been passed in the Dáil and passed very quickly and without any kind of real debate, are astonished by the nature of the legislation that we have in this country on certain social issues. And I think the number of things that there is a just this this gap between what we what the the, the values of the are the are the beliefs of of the, the the population at large and the people in Dolair and that that gap that's not good for democracy. No, I mean some people might question the issue of of democratic legitimacy if substantial amounts of views are simply not represented, and you can get away with the odd thing. But if masses of views aren't represented, and let's say there are structural barriers in place to starting a political party that could represent those views, well, I mean, Michael, people could throw around all sorts of terms to describe your democracy. Well, you could start by wondering if it was a democracy at all. And I think this Irish Times poll is actually a very, very serious warning flag there, because we're talking about... These are current policies. These are current active policies. And they're not just, these are not small issues. These are, and these are not, these are not small moves. These are policies which are going to have a large long-term impact on the quality of life of a lot of people. And these, Gary, this is only the beginning. We have already heard, I don't know if you noticed yesterday on the radio, that the murmurings and the mumblings regarding, you know, our commitment to the 7%. It's now becoming obvious. <laughs> wow. It's now becoming obvious that we're not going to hit the 7% target, Gary. Now, if you consider that we barely hit the 7%, did we actually hit 7% even during lockdown? Uh, no, I don't think we did. I think we're just a touch under 7%. We got close. For, and that was at a time where the economy was, was basically running like half-cocked. And we couldn't do it then. So the notion that a fully functioning, full uh, economy going forward on all cylinders was, go and you could reduce carbon emissions by seven percent and do this year on year for whatever number of years, ten years, and that this wasn't going to involve really, really serious uh, sacrifices—is that the word we could use on behalf of the ordinary people? Now, if at this stage, Gary before we've even got into the the really bad stuff, you're looking at 82% opposition to carbon tax. What's that going to look like in three or four years' time, if they persist? That has um, the unknowns are left in these polls, whereas a lot of times they'll actually strip out the unknowns and just do it as a straight support oppose. Yeah. So if you do that, this actually looks worse. I mean, there are numerous issues where 70% of the population is against current proposals. But I suppose, I mean, we've talked about this at, at great length before. Uh, Michael, there's no point relitigating a lot of it. There's one thing I wanted to mention before we go, and that was there's a new study on the Slonchicare contracts. There was a study done where they had, they they asked over a thousand respondents, uh, people working in the medical field in various specialities, mm. what they thought about certain things like public only practice, you know, all of this, this general slanchicare nonsense. Yeah. They pulled them on that, and then they gave them a copy of the uh, currently being debated slanchicare contract for doctors. And then they pulled them again. Yeah. And sort of, having read that, did you change your mind? And Michael, I think the slanchicare contract may be the most powerful tool for convincing people the Irish health service should be privatised I've ever heard of. <laughs> I mean, the results are incredible. Go on, tell me. So, now, to start off, I'll make this point. So these might be people who have an interest in a particular result if they want to use this as a negotiating tool. So there is the possibility of bias there. So I just want to mention that because that's important to mention. When they polled people before and they said, do you want, what kind of workload do you want? Do you want public? Do you want private? Do you want public-private? 55% said they wanted public-private practice. 
38% said they wanted a public-only contract. As in, they didn't want to take on any private work they wanted, a doctor wanted, or consultant wanted to work purely in the public service. After reading the contract, that went down to 6%. <laughs> 6% from 30, what? 38. 38 to 6%. <laughs> Way to win the argument. Oh no, but there's more, Michael. Working only in the private sector was the first choice of 0.2% of them before they read the contract. Afterwards, it was 20%. Wow. 1% said that they were considering immigration if this contract was brought in before reading it. 40% said they would immigrate afterwards. Jeepers. 82% said they thought if the contract was brought in, they wouldn't be able to keep their current level of skill and they would have de-skilling issues because they wouldn't have access to it. And actually, I remember when I talked to Jimmy Sheehan, one of the founders of BlackRock Clinic, he was saying the reason he had gone into private practice was he was a specialist in, I think, um, hip surgery. Yeah, that's And right. he was being paid, but they didn't have the, the resources to actually um, let him work as often as he would like. So one of his concerns was that he was just getting worse at his job because, you know, they wouldn't have the funding for the theatre or for the staff. And then he just had to sit there. Surgeons get good and... Surgeons get good and stay good by just doing the same op- the operations again and again and again and again. So the more you do it, the better you, get, you are. And the less you do it, yeah, that's a problem. Which I think is one of the reasons to go into private practice that people don't note in Ireland. I mean, money is obviously an aspect, but the health, the public health service is a mess and it's frustrating to deal with and it's nightmarish. And why do that when you can just work in a nice private facility, work more, keep your skill level, and not have to deal with them. So what was the concern about de-skilling with, in, in the poll? Um, that they wouldn't have access to enough work or to theatre practice. But was there, any, was there any change between before and after? I actually didn't make a note of what it was before. It was 82% after. After? 82%? I think it was 40% before. There you go. That is... And you know the thing about immigration? I mean, we're laughing at that, but actually, that's a real issue. I... I maybe plucking this number out of my arse, but we have lost a hell of a lot of doctors. I, I, there's a number in my head which I won't say because it may be completely off the wall, but I, I saw a, a report there recently talking about the number of doctors we're going to lose over the next few, few years, but also the doctors we have lost. Because, first of all, Irish medical schools, we don't have many, many of them, but they all tend to be of a, a pretty decent standard internationally, reputation-wise. They're English-speaking. So an Irish doctor is a pretty... An Irish medical degree is a pretty decent thing to be able to put in your back pocket and go off into the world. You can make a few quid with it. I don't know what the what the, what the the standard is now, but I know in 2019 there was an OECD study which said that relative to its population, we produce the highest amount of medical graduates of any OECD country. But we are also massively dependent on foreign doctors, so I would assume there is a massively high level of immigration there. I think over the last number of years, we've lost literally thousands of doctors to the North America and to the Antipodes. Also to the Middle East, to, to a lesser extent. Oh, there was what was the other one? They asked consultants how many of them would consider going full-time, private practice, no public work at all, instead of taking the Slanche Care contract. 84.7% said they'd consider it. Whoa. Now, there are already consultancy posts that the state cannot fill. So, yeah, that's not a hit this country's state service can take. Uh, there, there are empty consultancy posts that we haven't been able to fill for a long time. Yeah, but I mean, as someone, Michael, who believes broadly that the Irish Health Service should be privatised in order to steal the poverty from the Irish Health Service... Uh, this is fantastic. This is, I mean, one of the best things I've ever seen. You could spend years trying to convince these people that they should go into private uh, sector work and that the public sector is incredibly dysfunctional and the government has managed to do it in a single document. You know, we talk a lot about healthcare. I mean, the fact is that in comparison to other systems, well, our closest systems, Irish healthcare is, is actually pretty good in many ways and in some ways has got better. The problem is that there seem to be certain endemic problems in it which are just getting worse and that 
the problem is it's it's it there are certain areas now which are dysfunctional but the real problem is that there is no sign that they're not going to do anything except become more dysfunctional i don't know if it means anything if it may mean nothing at all but i tried to i had to make an appointment to see my doctor uh, a couple of days ago not that long ago gary that would have been something that would have been a question you'd ring up on monday and i get in on thursday kind of thing my first appointment with to see my doctor is in four weeks time now there are parts of the world where that seems like a perfectly normal thing but that's not normal here that has never been normal here that you have to wait a month to see your gp now i know we're talking COVID, but still that really that concerns me that if we also there are problems coming down the line that nobody seems to be willing to face up to regarding the supply not at consultant level but at, at general practice level that for the provision of services in communities outside of larger towns and even in larger towns for people to be able to sign up to a gp service is becoming more and more difficult and whatever about the acute hospital treatment or even chronic most people's experience of a health service is at the general practice level and we really really don't want to get down to a position where we're looking at a situation like in canada or the united kingdom other places where you where your access to your general practitioner is not based on days but on weeks and in, ca- in some cases months but there doesn't seem to be any kind of a willingness to face up to certain obvious structural problems in the way that we are staffing these things because there are certain issues that people don't want to talk about well put it this way it certainly gives you pause for thought we'll see if it gives the minister for health any pause for thought well actually it was announced at a um, conference and stephen donnelly was the next speaker <laughs> he uh, he is quoted in the irish medical times as um he said it was disheartening to see the the reaction <laughs> and uh the contract, he said, the contract doesn't exist yet. It's yet to be implemented. The IMT says, the minister declined to comment on a number of aspects of the proposed contracts, citing ongoing negotiations. Well, I should imagine it is disheartening. I mean, to be fair, Gary, can you imagine you're there, you're Donnelly, you're probably most of the time trying to keep your head above the water because you're you're in far beyond your comfort level into a policy area where you're effectively drowning most of the time. And suddenly you read this and you just think, ah, oh, lads, ah, oh, Jesus. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting good news, but I wasn't expecting this. I like the idea that he was just told there would be a study launched before him. And then he's just sitting there <laughs> going, oh, Jesus. And oh, no. Oh. no, 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 <laughs> And then they just turn to him like, so, Stephen, what do you think of that? Oh, yeah, there, Steve. Do you think this is going well? <laughs> Yeah, it's going on all right. Anyway, I suppose we'll leave it there maybe for the time being. And we shall be back on Friday. Um, all the things being equal. It is Wednesday today, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, so until then, mind yourselves and try and keep out of the doctors. All the best.